You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. Today was supposed to be the day that I ended our series, Hope in Empty Places. I know you've never heard of me doing this before, but... um, Outside of next week, next week we'll, we'll do the service around uh, Mission 21, but the next week I actually will conclude, conclude it. I didn't want to miss this particular message. Now, interestingly enough, the last two messages I've preached in this series was not on my list of, of preaching, right? So if you don't know, I wrote a book called Hope in Empty Places, and this is a preaching series out of that book. And I had mapped out one thing, but i also been doing a small group on Monday nights. And Monday nights, we've been going through the chapters two at a time. And the last two uh, messages that I preached were because they said, you can't skip this one. And so I listened, and uh, I didn't skip those. So, but this particular one has been on my, kind of on my bucket list to speak. And it's because it's, it's a little different from all the other chapters. All the other chapters and all the other messages I dealt with is... Um, the empty place that I was referring to was the thing that was outside of us. It was outside of our control, right? The premise that there's hope in that place, even though we can't control that place because our hope is in a person. It's not in an outcome. But today's message is around um, the empty that we can control. The, um, the, um, actually, in fact, it's the empty we create by our own choices and our own decisions we find ourselves in empty places, but those empty places are the ones in which we've created ourselves. Okay, so what do you what do you do with those? Well, to taint, to change that, we have to change us. If the circumstance we find ourselves in seems empty because of choices and decisions we've made, the only way that we can change us is by changing that. Okay, but many more people would rather double down than than they than kneel down. All right, that's, this is the culture we find ourselves in. It's, it's beyond more just the fight and flight that we experience ourselves when we hit challenges. It's anymore we got a culture that would rather double down than, the, than ever kneel down, double down than ever surrender. And so that, that's in that context. What does it mean, though, in our context when, when, we, when we kind of find ourselves in a place where we, we really know, we were honest, we've put ourselves in this position, okay? We've put ourselves in this position, position. So in that case, then, what do we do now? What do we do now? So I grew up in a very personal responsibility household. Um, my dad's famous line was, if you make your bed, you have to lie in it. I never quite understood the logic of that because if you make a bed, you don't lie in it, right? It's after you've lied. So I've never understood, never understood it all, but I, but I never felt strong enough to challenge him. So um, uh, because when he was saying that, I, I just needed to, to shut up and listen, right? But my mom's phrase was a little bit more spiritual. It was, be, um, beware your sin will find you out. That was mom's. That was always her line, right? You can hide it from me, but you won't hide it from God, right? So, so, that, was, so that, was mom, that was mom's perspective. Um, so you can, I, you know, I would say it differently now. You know, when you make your own choices and decisions that are counter to the counsel of God, you have to be prepared to navigate those destinations on your own. When you make choices and decisions that's counter to the counsel of God, you have to be prepared to navigate those waters on your own. Now, I don't want to imply there was no mercy and grace in my house. There was mercy and grace in, in my house, but never at the expense of personal responsibility. Never without kind of circling back 
you know, to that particular point. So I've defined it. Generally, when I use those terms, I'll, I'll define those terms so you will um, kind of understand and appreciate the difference. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve. Your, your actions or whatever deserves this recompense, but you don't get that. Okay, so that's mercy. Someone's given you mercy. Grace is the opposite. Grace is receiving something that you couldn't earn and you don't deserve. All right, so that's grace. Mercy, I didn't get what I deserved. Okay, grace, someone gives me something I haven't earned. So that's the difference between mercy and grace. And mercy and grace are two very brilliant facets of the love of God. Mercy and grace are brilliant facets of the love of God that we encounter, we encounter those through repentance. Now, repentance um, isn't the avoiding, isn't the avoiding of a penalty, right? So, I, you know, I'll never do it again, I'll never do it again, never, right before the spanking, right? So it's, it, re repentance it isn't, the, isn't the, um, the removal of a penalty. What it really is, is the transfer of a penalty, right? Because a penalty's been paid. Jesus died on a cross, for our sin and resurrected for our life. That, that was a one and done act in the past that continues to carry present benefits. So in my repentance, I'm not avoiding a penalty, somehow uh, circumventing a penalty. It's, it's a transfer. It's been shifted. It's been shifted to Christ because it's, then it's freedom and it's redemption uh, and it's forgiveness. Um, Every encounter that we come up with in the Gospels, when Jesus encounters someone, we get a great display of his mercy and grace. It's some of the fun parts about reading the Gospel, of how Jesus interacts with people that don't deserve one thing, they really deserve another, and how he continually kind of enters relationship with them from this mercy and grace, even still personal responsibility in some cases, but this mercy and grace perspective. But... With, with all of that we can read about his interactions, I think where we get the most uh, full, the fullest expression of his mercy and grace comes when he tells us a story. He tells a story. I love stories. Um, Annie loved for me to read her stories at night to go to bed. But some of, when she got older, then she, she wanted me to make up stories. And that was always fun. No, Dad, don't read that one. Make one up. Right, and so that was always kind of fun doing that. And but as kids, we love stories. As adults, we love stories. And Jesus knew the impact of stories, so he told a whole bunch of stories in the gospel. They're also known as parables. And on this particular one today, you may have heard it a hundred times. You've maybe never heard it. But what I'm asking you to do is to try to try to have it with new ears today, like you're on that hillside. Um, in the Middle East, which none of us would want to be right now, but so that, that's a little kink to that armor, right? But, but that we would, you'd be on this autumn hillside with a breeze, gathering to hear the most unique rabbi that you had ever, ever encountered. And so you're, 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 you're loving being there and you're wanting with this new heart to hear what this new guy has to say. So... You can follow along in Luke 15. Of course, we always have it up on the screen. But Jesus tells the hearers on this day a trilogy of three lost stories. He talks about a lost coin. He talks about a lost sheep. But then at the end of that trilogy, he tells the biggest of the stories. And he tells the story of a lost son 
the lost son. Kind of, kind of the, the, the historical moniker that's placed on the story is a story of the prodigal son. Uh, an easier way to understand this is a lost son. So it begins on verse 11, this particular part. Verse 11 on Luke 15. It says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. This is the quintessential, I know what's best for me line. Dad, I know how to use this better than you know how to use this. I would like my inheritance now. It, it didn't matter that the son had a roof over his head. It didn't matter that where he was living would have been considered wealthy and luxury at the time. He was convinced that if he could just get outside of the shadow of his father and outside of the shadow of his family, he could make more of his life by himself than he could make living in the father's house. And although we can read it as, I don't know, as a, a, a line and a half, the listeners on that hillside would have gasped out loud. They would have been like, is this, is this, right? Because then the, the lines start blurring between, are you making this story up? Is this a real encounter, right? That's the beauty of a good story. Does this actually happen? Jesus, did you see this? Are you just telling us a story? And they could not believe that a son would have done this to his father. This was the ultimate nuclear option of getting out of the family. It was, you're alive, but you're dead to me. The Jewish audience would have been floored in that regard, right? But... Jesus goes on. There are, there's no contemplation. There's no time for them to figure out. I know in, in my mind, my, my, I have a mathematical mind. My mind in me goes to, well, how would the father have even done that? Right? That, that ends, that verse 12 ends, so he divided his property between them. And I'm going, how? How? His son's, his son's leaving. His son just said, I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. You owe me an inheritance. How, how, how unique does that sound? You, you owe me an inheritance. This, half of this stuff is mine, and I want mine now. The audience is, uh, and Jesus just goes on. He divided the property and moved on. I want to know, how did he do it? I mean, did he have that much money in the bank? Was he that liquid? Did he, did he already have um, a CPA's independent audit of the value of the, of the property and all the stuff? And so he could just kind of, Go back to that ledger sheet and say, okay, i got to come up with this much cash. Well, I have this over here. Here it is, son, by nice knowing you, right? Is this what happened? Could he have um, said, okay, well, actually, I don't have enough cash in hand to divide my property up like this, so I'm going to have to sell something. So how long does it take to sell something? And then, you know, if you, if you move stuff around, if you move, move assets around or you sell something, you are, you are locked in to the time in which you're doing it, Right? So there's no kind of wait until the best time is the market up, is the market down. It's, it just is what it is. When you sell and have to sell in a moment, you get what you can get. And I'm telling you, the Jewish audience, all this stuff would have been flooding in their mind. They can't believe that that son put their father in that kind of predicament. And Jesus just says he had divided his property, and he moved on. Right? There's no indication um, that the, father's met, met, the father met his son's request with offense or anger. There's no, don't let the door hit you on the beep on the way out. There's, we, 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 get, we get none of that. We get none of that in this story. There's actually more not said in those first 30 words than, than you could actually say about the situation and where it was. All right, now we move to verse 13. It says, not long after that, not long after that, 
The younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods of the, that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. All right, a lot there again. First, not long after that, not long after that, introduces that there was a pause in time to which he demanded the inheritance and in which he received what he had to go in. Not long after that. And I go to, what was the house like during that time? Right? What, what kind of intervention was the father having to do between his wife and his other son? Can you imagine that bedroom conversation? Like, honey, you're doing what? You're, you're selling, you can't sell that. That was dad's. <laughs> right? I mean, I can, I can imagine the breakfast table. I'm not serving him any breakfast. He can get up and make his own eggs. The son, silent treatment that he's getting. I mean, the father is having to sit in the opinions of everybody else in his house. He's sitting in what the son wants. He's sitting in the opinions of his son and his wife in the regard of the situation. And he's, and he's managing that tension in the house. Not long after that. All right? So the son set off for a distant country and squandered. All right? So... Here's an interesting thing. When you decide to walk away from the people who love you and the God who loves you, it's not a short walk. And so let me also say then, if you have a prodigal in your family, in your life, and you're surprised at what they're doing and where they are, this is not much comfort, but can I say, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised because, because when they've decided to separate themselves from a place they love and a people or a place that loves them, a people who love them, a God who loves them, well, they're going to have to go a distance away or they're always going to be reminded of that. It's part and parcel of the process. All right. Um, here then, um, the, the third part is a, we get outlined for us the prodigal's financial skill. It's labeled as squandered. This gives you the, the financial acumen of this son. Okay? The Oxford Dictionary defines prodigal, not squandered. The Oxford Dictionary defines prodigal as spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. Isn't it inter interesting that we have, we have a story in Scripture that's thousands and thousands of years old that influences a definition and teaches us this, what, what, this, this, what is this idea of a prodigal means. A prodigal squanders what's put in front of him. The son had all these assets at his disposal when he was a son. But it had guardrails to it. Right? It had guardrails because it was going to expand. Estates would expand. But now left to his own resources out, out from under the covering of his father, they went away. They dissipated. They evaporated. Because he had no guidance on guardrails of how to use that which God was given him. The, the, the word prodigal is a derivative of a Latin word that, remains, uh, that means um, driving away from a place of security and a person of love. Someone who drives away, drives away a, a place of security 
and a place of love. Man, the audience is getting this. They're, they're scratching their head. They, at, one, at one part, they, they are upset for their father. They're feeling the offense of that family. On the, on the other sense, there's probably a lot of stupid kid. I can't believe that he drove away, walked away from all that was there. And kind of an interesting twist here, I think, is it's very easy in this scenario where it says that the prodigal drove away by this definition is also something I would say he's driven away his parents, right? He's created a gap that wasn't there before. So he dry, like forcing them in a sense to not want to be with the son. This making sense? That you're getting some of, this, some of the emotion that's going on here that, and the emotions going on in the crowd and Jesus is just kind of setting, he's just kind of setting this up all along the way. Um, then it ends with, um, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the cold country, he began to be in need. I find this to be a very true statement that a party, a party can mask empty for a season, but it doesn't change it. So I think you could replace the word freedom too when, when, when this idea of personal freedom, when I'm out from underneath that which has given me kind of counsel and guidance and direction and security and I want to get out from under that, that that freedom for a moment will only mask an empty season that's coming. It, it, won't, it won't change it. Um, so we find him now getting hungry, long to fill his stomach with the pods of the pigs, but no one give him anything. I think Jesus here adds this part as a zinger, right? Okay, so he could have given him any job. And he went and worked in a, a marketplace. He worked to work, went to work, you know, shoeing horses. He went to work. But he puts a Jewish boy, he puts a Jewish boy in a pig pen, right? So I think, I think man, I think Jesus is going, this last one will really get him. I can I'll add this in here, and then really, I'll really get him, I'll really get him where they want to. Now, um, generally speaking, I, I, I experienced this, I, I've participated in this. We, we're in a culture of this now, right? Our culture right now will double down before we'll ever, we'll ever say, I'm sorry, right? We're going to double down. And he doubles down. He doubles down. All his money's gone. But before he's given up, he's a scrapper. He gets a job, right? So he doubles down. He's going to get a job. Um, and this is where he finds the distinction from working with someone than working for someone, okay? So I guarantee the boy knew hard work. Grew up on a working farm. He knew hard work, okay? But what he didn't know was, was working for someone. He had always worked with the family. And this is where this thing really kind of, uh, it kind of drives home with me. Um, so you know I grew up working for my, for my father, working at a service station. And, but I remember one particular summer, I, I believe it might have been my, my senior year. I don't know. I was... Uh, and it's summertime, and so it's 6.30 to 5 was my shift, Monday through Friday, uh, 8 to 2 on Saturday. But my dad hired a lot of Air Force personnel, okay, because uh, there was Air Force base nearby. And um, when my dad was in the Air Force, the person who owned the station prior gave him a job. So he gave him a job to help make ends meet. So my dad was a sucker for servicemen who wanted an extra job. But here's what that meant. That meant a lot of times they didn't show up for work for the five o'clock shift because something else was going on on base and they couldn't communicate that. Or they were put on a, they were put on a C, C-130 heading somewhere and they couldn't tell anybody. So I was the one who picked up those extra shifts. Well, that ate into everything else I had planned that day. 
And that sounds funny, except when you start stringing 15-hour days together, you start complaining. At least I did. Like, why, why, why am I the one who has to pick up the extra shifts? And my, my mom, on one particular day, she said, well, would you rather your father do it? And she said it a little differently than that. And <laughs> so the, the next piece that was a little bit difficult um, was no matter, no matter how many hours I worked, my pay was 50 bucks. And so the way we worked was cash business. So you get, they get their paychecks on Friday. So dad would cash everybody's paycheck. So he'd hand them a paycheck. They'd sign it. They'd hand it back to dad. Dad would cash it out of the cash register, give them their, go on. And so I'm in this line of people getting much more money than I was. And like, I, I didn't understand. And I, I had to pay for my own gas when I started too. And I said, I don't, okay, this is getting too far. Like, why, why don't I, it's a gas station, right? I put this in other people's vehicles all the time. They pay, I can't get one of these for me. No, for a year, I worked a year, no gas, because he said, none of your other buddies get to do this. We don't want you to be able to do, don't, don't fall prey to this. Wow, they were, um, they were uh, yeah. So, so this was the quintessential conversation. Mom, why is it this way? And she said, you don't understand that you don't work for us, you work with us. This is your place. We're saving this for you for college. We're doing this together. This is your inheritance. Well, that was a game changer for me. Oh, you mean, you mean all of this is ours? Yeah. Oh, I just thought my car was mine. No, son. The house is yours. The business is yours. The equipment, it's ours, son. It's ours. And it was a game changer, and this is what the son didn't get. He didn't understand until these moments that he, everything the father had was his. It was his inheritance. Under the tutelage of his father, it would blossom. Under his tutelage, he saw it go away quickly. Interesting. Interesting perspective. Now the people are really liking the story that's listening to it, right? So instead of living in the place, see, he could have. He could have lived in the place of, God, of, of guilt. What have I done? He doesn't. He lives in a forward place. He says to himself, what do I do now? What do I do now? So here's verse 17. It's one of the best lines in the whole parable. When he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here, I'm starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. And he gets this order right. And obviously, it's Jesus telling the story, right? He's not going to get the order wrong. All of our sin is against the father first before it's against anyone else. So he said, I've sinned against my father. Where am I? And against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This was his aha moment. He's sitting, he's sitting where he never dreamed he would be. And he comes to his senses. And then he begins rehearsing how he's going to talk to his father when he gets back. Um, he doesn't have any understanding that the Father has the same level of mercy and grace for him when he returns as he did when he left. This is something he doesn't, he doesn't get yet. He understands that the dad did not close the door on him 
or he would have never ha- even had this conversation. Can you, can you, if you circle back in the story, dad just divides it up and gives him, tells him to go on. Now, if the dad does other things, do you think this conversation comes as naturally to him sitting in this pig pen? It'd be more like, I can't go back, but wait, there's no way that, that I can recover from what dad said to me. Well, dad already told me this, and I know he's not going to go back on what he said. So what he's dealing now is his own perception. His perception is, is, I think it's right. There's no way dad's taking me back as a son. But because this thing didn't blow up the way I think it could have blown up, maybe he'll take me back to work because I was a really good worker. Right? And so that gets him up out of that pig. I I can make that case. I can make the case that I'm a good worker. I can't make the case I'm going to be a good son, but I can make the case I'm going to be a good worker. And he gets up and he leaves. Um, the, the standing up is a very important phrase in this. The, the, standing up, the word could also be translated resurrections. When he stood up, he had already been repentive. His repentive was when he came to his senses. When he stood up, he was resurrected. So he doesn't even get to the Father yet. And the way Jesus is telling the story is that he has already tapped into the resurrection power of the Father. When he's made the decision, he's repentive. He stands up. He's resurrected. Even though he still has this to go. God isn't looking for us to tell him, I'm sorry. You've got to break out of this culture. This culture, that the wanting an apology is a weapon. We have weaponized apologies. I want you to apologize to me. Is that really is that really what the objective is? No, it's not. You should apologize. What they're saying is, you should admit that you're wrong and I'm right. You embarrassed me in this and I want to extract my pound of flesh. And this is what we get with cancel culture. Jesus has already given a pound of flesh. Our repentance isn't somehow because he got offended. He was offended by our action, and if we don't straighten out that offense, then then we're going to live separated from God. The reason why the father doesn't go down the son's throat is because the father had compassion for his son in that moment. That's the only explanation, that his compassion built up this sorrow, knowing what the son was going to go through, but then knowing that if the son didn't go through it, there's no way he's coming back. He couldn't talk. He wasn't going to be able to talk any more sense into the son. No doubt they would have been around that mountain several times. Son, this is all yours. 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 I want it myself. I want to do 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 it myself. And the father being sorrowful, knowing if he doesn't go find this out by himself, he's never coming back home. So the dad didn't need an apology. When we come back home to our Heavenly Father, He's not looking for an apology. We didn't offend Him in the sense that somehow His pride has been hurt and He has to get over that pride being hurt. He wants us to return. Repentance is not an apology. Repentance is ownership and a change of direction. It's a movement back towards that where you have been. And that's what we see Jesus illustrating in this, um, in this message, uh, in this story. 
So the way I kind of bolded this out to try to help us remember it is that repentance is the only path to resurrections. Turning around is the only thing that leads to us standing up. You know, I'm in a lot, I've been in a lot of settings over my years where, you know, people will claim that there's no difference between Christianity and any other world religion. And, and that sounds really good um, until you look at other religions. It, just, it doesn't take a whole lot of scrutiny. Just a little bit of scrutiny lets you realize, no, there's a significant difference between Christianity and every other world religion. Christianity is, is the only faith that has the founder dying on behalf of the followers and the only one resurrecting so that we can have life. It's the only one where there is repentance. The other ones, there's sacrifice in order to gain favor. But Christianity is the only one of repentance and the repentance changing. Um, turning around is the only thing that leads us to the path of standing up. The second piece here is that resurrections always follow repentance. Turning around always leads to standing up. There isn't a scenario where repentance is not met with resurrections. Never. Never. You can, you can put a hierarchy of the list of the things of how you've walked away from God, and there isn't any of those things that measure higher than the others. When repentance comes, resurrections follow. He doesn't hold out on us when we return. The last would be resurrections always produce more life than we could have ever dreamed. There is, all, there is always more life in turning around and standing up than doubling down and staying put. And I don't, I don't, underst I don't understand it. I don't, uh, cognitively, it's difficult for me to understand and I've had plenty of conversations with people. I remember one very vividly, Gene and I having in our living room where the young lady looked at me and said, I know that what I'm doing and how I'm living is contrary to what God has intended and planned, but this is what I want to do now. And I just gasped at her own revelation. Like this wasn't a misunderstanding. She was making a very bold choice. And we were, we were oh gosh, we were floored for her. Um, that's doubling down. Kneeling down is going ahead and saying, this isn't turning out the way I thought it was. I need to go back to a different way. So here's the crescendo of the story. Um, verse 20b. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Why was, was he filled with compassion because he saw him? Or was he filled with compassion? He was filled with compassion and he saw him. Okay? He ran to his son. Well, I wonder what this guy's got to say now. I wonder how he's going to justify. I can't wait to hear this story. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. He was sorrowful all along because he was filled with compassion all along. Because the father was in pain because he knew the son was chasing a full life in an empty direction. So now we have, now we have the son's story. You know he rehearsed this whole thing. Said so He left for a distant country, so I don't know what Jesus would have intended on in terms of the distance, but whatever distance there was, we know it wasn't Amtrak, right? So he's walking. And, and there was a lot of time from the pig pen to his father, and you know the whole time he is rehearsing, he's rehearsing what he's going to say. 
he's rehearsing going to say. I love the fact that the father never interrupts him. Right? So, so even though the father runs to him, hugs him, kisses him, there's no interruption. Now it's time for the son to say what the son needs to say. Right? And he says this, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He was right. Right? Because he forfeited sonship. This is an accurate assessment. I no lo- I'm no longer worthy to become your son. And the dad doesn't stop in. He doesn't step in. He, well, it's okay, son. It's okay. Let's just, let's just move on. He lets him finish. But then the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead. The son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. His father had never stopped looking for his son to return. He had never stopped longing to embrace him. The father had already been prepared to do exactly what he instructed his servants to do. He knew there would be a day where his son would walk down that road. Um, I wrote this as a point, uh, a note point for you that repentance is so much deeper than I'm, than an I'm, I am sorry response. It's a returning action. We're all sorry when things doesn't, don't go well, right? We're all sorry when we make a decision that doesn't work out right. We're always sorry when we hurt someone's feelings. Sorry is a, is a normal part of our life. Repentance is not. Repentance is not. Because repentance is, I'm gonna, this is going to be different from here on out. I'm sorry just means I'm sorry. Um, but here's the better point. Resurrections are much deeper than second chances. They're fresh starts and full starts. Right? Because, because what happens here is the father, when he gives him a, a robe and a ring uh, and a celebration, he doesn't, what he doesn't do is he doesn't put the son behind the other son. Now just follow me. He doesn't say, well, son, it's good to have you home. I welcome you back in the family. But you know there's going to have to be consequences for this, right? Because, look, you've already spent what I had for you in the future, and you've already spent it. So it's not fair. It's not fair to your brother if this changes. So you're going to have to get on the back of the line. Now, that would be another chance, right? That'd be another chance. Okay, thanks, Dad. I understand you've kind of taken me back in the family. But when we come, when we come to Christ, even if from seasons of walking away from Christ, it, he doesn't have that. That's not how that conversation works. It's not, well... I can appreciate the fact that you're back, but you're going to have to start from the back of the line. I can appreciate you're back, but there, you know, there's going to have to be some way in which you and I work this out again, that you have to work back into my mercy and grace. That's not how it works. Salvation, whether it's coming to Christ for the first time or it is coming back to Christ in a repentive heart, is a negotiation where God then does the math and figures out where you stand again. It's not just a fresh chance. It's a full chance. We get, we get all of him. We get all of him again. So you know, when, I, you know, when I preach messages, I, <clears throat> I always try to think about the audience. I think who's going to be listening and who, does this, who, does this, um, who would this target, if you will. And so for this particular one, I have um, prodigals. And I have people who are attached to prodigals. 
moms, dads, guardians, grandparents, maybe brothers and sisters, right? And so what, how, what can we draw from the Father that would lead us in a, maybe a different path on how you deal with your prodigal? The first that I think the Father teaches us is to leave an open door. Leave an open door. So why do doors get closed in these situations? Because we get offended. We, did, we get offended and we get angry, right? The Father could have said, are you serious? All I've done for you? All I've done for you, this is how you're going to treat me? Well, you're going to treat me this way once, but you're not going to treat me this way again. Now, listen. Let's just take this instance. 100% justifiable. Like, right? This is Make your bed lie in it. 100% justifiable. And yet what we have from the Father is he left an open door. What will it take for you to leave an open door? Or, in, in most cases, this might be more applicable. What do you do to reopen a door you've already closed? What do you do to open a door you've always closed? It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't mean an, ac uh, an acquiescence away from the posture that you took over a particular thing. You, you, you can stand firm on something and still have an open door. Right? Because that's an open door into your heart. That's an open door. In your, they might reject it or accept it, but you can have an open heart and still stand on whatever principle you stood on and still maintain an open heart. Again, whether they reject it or not, that's, a, that's not really relevant. The son rejected the father, and yet the door was open because the father left it open. That's why the son can return. Second um, is the practice benevolent detachment. Come on, team. Benevolent, benevolent detachment. Gene and I learned this phrase from a book called Get Your Life Back by John Eldridge. And it was, it was, it was somewhat of a um, the similar context. But I think what, what John was talking at the time is decisions, because they wrote around COVID, everything was heavy, right? Everything was heavy. So how do you engage? How do you engage emotionally in heavy things and it not crush you? Because this is what happens when you have someone close to you that has now walked away from you and or walked away from the Lord. It's heavy. So what, what, what John taught with this term is benevolent means good. Detachment is a separation, right? So, so uh, as long, um, well, it's coming down to believing that God loves that person in your life more than you love them. If, if you don't believe that God loves them more than you love them, you can't, you can't do benevolent detachment. But if you believe that God loves them more than you love them, that, then the, when the weight of this gets too much for you, remember we talked about casting your care, the reference it looks more like tipping your shoulders, that you roll that off onto the Father because you know he loves them more than you love them. So any particular time when you feel overwhelmed by their position, that's a clear indication that you need to practice benevolent attachment. Your, your prayer for them hasn't ceased, but the pressure and the weight that you carry on their behalf has to be rolled off or you're not going to be able to pray anymore. Benevolent attachment. Open door, benevolent attachment. The third um, is to embrace a work-watch balance. Embrace a work-watch balance. Okay, follow me. The father had a working farm. He had to keep working. If he had been consumed by the position of his son, he would not have been able to keep working. 
Pastor, you're making this up. I know I'm extrapolating. It's a story. Jesus was wanting to put them in a position for their minds to run in a story. Or he would have just given them seven points and told them to go home. Okay? So he had to keep working, but that didn't mean that he could stop. He had to stop watching. So I bet every day, every day when his work took him across whatever road led back to the ranch, he looked down that road. Because if he doesn't, do you think really it was just that one particular day by happenstance he happens to look and his son's on his way down? Right? No, he's looking every single day. He has already planned his response. He knows what he's going to do when he sees his son. That's a work. I got, but I've got to do this. I got to do this. I can't let this crush me, but I'm going to keep my eyes open and looking for my son. I believe that he worked in faith and he watched in hope. He worked in faith. I believe, Father, you're bringing him back. I believe he's going to return. I believe this is going to happen. And every time he looked, he looked with hope, which is confident expectation, right, that there would be a day that the son was going to walk down that road. The last piece for this for me would be to, this one may be a little harder, but you've got to leave the ahas to God. You can't manufacture your prodigal's ahas. Because if you try, all they're going to do is sound like I told you so's. Well, if you'd have just listened to me, you wouldn't have, that wouldn't have happened. What you've just done is you've just squashed an aha moment, right? They're, they're giving you an aha that something this happened. You know, well, yeah, well, I, I could have told you that. That's an I told you so. So here's how I want us to respond. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, and then we're going to do it. Here's what, I, here's what I'm going to do. If you have, so you're not doing it yet. I'm telling you what we're going to do. All right. If you have a prodigal in your family, I'm going to ask you to stand. And then after you stand, what we're going to do is you're going to look for other people in the room that have prodigals. And then you're going to get in two or three families which means you're going to have, some of you are going to have to move. You're going, and, and you're going to pray together for those prodigals. Now look, you do not have time to share the story. But you can share the name. Okay? And what I believe happens is we've exponentially increased the opportunity for a prodigal to come home. Because you have been overwhelmed by this. You may even be hiding this but you've invited someone else into it. And that invitation means there's more people praying into the life of that prodigal. Okay? The second thing is I'm going to ask if you are a prodigal. Are you a prodigal? I'm not a prodigal pastor. I'm in, I'm in church today. Yeah, not necessarily the same thing. And would this be your aha so I'm going to ask you to stand, but I'm going to ask you to walk down here while everybody else is praying. Walk down here and pray with me. Okay? The whole time as usual, in our response time, communion's available on my left and my right. The team will be leading us in worship, and we'll worship, and at the end of that, then I'll come and close out. All right, so I told you what I'm going to do. Now we're going to do it. 
you have someone in your life who's a prodigal, I want you to stand up. Someone in your life is a prodigal. And it's the same in both services. So, take an opportunity today to let some other people's faith. Like, I, I might have be able to have faith for you even when I don't have enough faith for me, right? And so we're going to borrow some of that and link some of that. Um, so right now, then, do what you got to do. Look around, move to what you have to do. You might have to get in an aisle. You might have to do, you know, whatever. But get what you have to do to be around two or three different, two or three different families. So remember, this is like I'm flying a plane. The exit may be behind you, Okay. That was funnier, but I know it's a bad moment. But that was funnier than what you gave me credit for. Are you gathering? Let's gather. You gather. Two or three. Two or three, and let's gather. While they're gathering, you would say, Pastor, I'm actually the prodigal today. And if you're online watching, I encourage you to stand up. I'm the prodigal today. If you find yourself to be the prodigal today, I ask you to stand up and come down and pray with me. So, Father, this is your time. It's all been your time, Lord. Your word, unpacking your word, the Holy Spirit unpacking it in our lives. Hear our prayers today, Father. Heal our hearts. Heal our hearts today, Father. And bring our prodigals home in the name of Jesus, I pray. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.